the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We are living in an overstimulated world, and the resulting stress impacts our physical and mental health. It can stand in the way of our happiness. Joining us today to discuss how we can retrain our brain and break the stress-anxiety cycle is Dr. Frank Lawless, a renowned psychologist, researcher, and counselor. Dr. Lawless is the co-founder of the Lawless and Peavy PNP Centers for Psychoneurological Change. He is the chief content advisor for the Dr. Phil Show and is the author of many books, including Retraining the Brain, a 45-Day Plan to Conquer Stress and Anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Lawless. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. I look forward to uh, having some very meaningful conversation about this very important topic. And as do I, doctor, because this is something that is very close to my heart because it's actually something that I experienced in a very profound way in my life. And in your book, A 45-Day Plan to Conquer Stress and Anxiety, you report that it's estimated that more than 90% of people will have a bout with depression at some point in their life, and that 70% of adults say they experience anxiety daily. Those are alarming statistics, doctor. What do you believe is happening today that is causing these mental health issues? Well, for one thing, our uh, timing is all off. In the earlier days of mankind, we usually went by the sun so that we would deal with uh, problems of the day while the sun is up, and then uh, consequently, when the sun was down, we would have a rest period, a restoration period. So what we have now is with the discovery of electricity and uh, the modern conveniences, we now work probably closer to 24-7. So we have fewer and fewer hours to restore ourselves. And then, of course, the bigger problem is that we don't get the important resolutions of conflict and stress through our sleep. We have enormous problems with regard to sleep disorders. So, Doctor, in a perfect world, how should a quote-unquote normal brain work? What would be considered optimal brain function? Well, I have a particular word that I like to use. That's called rhythm, rhythm balance. Uh, And that is where uh, various uh, parts of your body that have rhythms, such as heartbeat and breathing and spinal fluid circulation and uh, uh, brain patterns all work in synchronicity so that uh, it's the variability uh, that uh, really is healthy. So we don't stick in one particular status forever. In other words, we we have uh, certain brain patterns that we use when we're dealing with uh, serious problems or problem solving and relationship uh, dealing. And then we have certain kinds of rest cycles that our brain is basically in an arrest issue. So what I see as the disharmony is the lack of rhythmic coordination uh, so that even within your brain, there are certain parts of your brain that's going fast in certain parts of the brain that's going slow. 
so you have a lot of missing connections or coordination uh, within yourself. You're not very effective in terms of uh, dealing with the present problem because you're uh, you don't have all your uh, what we call maybe senses around you that can help you. There was an interesting study that uh, often referred to that's called Secrets of Champions, and in that particular study, they studied the what we call the sympathetic and the uh, parasympathetic systems of the body and the mind. Uh, sympathetic uh, stages has to do with basically being aroused, having high levels of coordination, high, high levels of reactivity. And in, these, in this state, you, your heart rate is going fast, your eyes are dilated, you're basically very uh, on key in terms of where to focus your attention. Uh, and parasympathetic is the rest state. Uh, where you basically rest in a resting state. Your, your brain is what we call in the alpha state, and uh, you're basically refreshing yourself. And what we find is that, that if you take the top 1% of athletes and military officers uh, that the study employed uh, and measured their sympathetic and parasympathetic systems, what they found is that uh, pretty much all of them relied on a primarily parasympathetic level uh, with uh, some levels of sympathetic system. Uh, what's important about this is they were all very well coordinated. So they had this, uh, they employed both the restorative state as well as having some focus on the problem. Uh, and this is also true for other kind of military exercises. So basically you have these kinds of activities that you can employ that will restore your mental and physical activity. So Dr. Lawless, when the rhythm is off and, and it's not in sync, is the result what you write about something that you coined a stress storm? Is that what would happen? And, and if so, what is a stress storm? Well, it's basically, as you said, uh, it's a disharmony. It's a disharmony within the body. And uh, you have a state of fear, and and that's what your brain is focusing on. And it's not allowing you to have the uh, sense of enjoyment uh, and uh, restoration that we all need on, on a daily basis. And so this is something that's very physical that's occurring in the brain. Because I know when someone goes through... Um, what they may call an anxiety attack or an episode of of um, being stressed out, they tend to beat themselves up because they think it's something that they have a lot more control over in an immediate way. But this is something really physical that's happening, isn't it? They're not doing something wrong. Uh, exactly. I, I like the way you express that. It, it is a physical reaction at the brain level that uh, radiates or uh, goes down throughout the body. And so you have a total reaction of stress, and it is mostly physical in that sense of the word. Basically something that uh, happens normally, and uh, consequently you have some uh, way of, of dealing and managing it. And so, Doctor, when this happens, the result can be something as what you call a usual mental lockup. What is it that's happening that keeps us stuck that locks us up mentally? Well, it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, and that is that you, there's a part of your brain that's called a cingulate gyrus, for example. And this is kind of a coordinator within your brain. And so what happens when you get overwhelmed, the brain basically starts uh, just uh, going around in circles without reaching any kind of uh, solution. So state of anxiety, uh, but it has specific kinds of dynamics that uh, interferes with your ability to uh, think outside the box, as we say, and find problem-solving approaches. So when we're living in this stressed-out state or we're experiencing these mental lockups or stress storms, it isn't just an emotional problem, is it? I mean, things can happen to our body on a physical level that can lead to various types of diseases, can't they? Absolutely, and this is especially true for nutrition. Uh, let me plug uh, a part of that in. 
in the sense that uh, our food uh, creates certain kinds of metabolism in our brain. For example, I'm a big proponent of uh, uh, anti-sugar. Sugar is poison to our brain. And so consequently, when we consume too much sugar, we actually are destroying part of our brain cells, and just like uh, alcohol and other kinds of drugs. So what happens is that basically we, we have less restorative powers in our brain and consequently uh, can deteriorate. Doctor, I'm middle-aged, and when I was growing up in science class, we were basically taught that your brain is set, and then as you age, it starts to deteriorate, and or if it's damaged, that there really wasn't a whole lot that could be done about it. But now, science is showing that the brain is not permanently hardwired, and that it can change. So can you explain to us what this science says about neuroplasticity and how we can benefit from this research? Why is this so exciting? Well, this is very exciting because, like you said, up until about 20 years or so years ago, uh, we considered when the brain was injured, it couldn't repair itself. But that is absolutely not true. It can repair itself, and it has this amazing ability of having other channels that we can uh, use in our brain to basically uh, do the same thing. For example, uh, people who have strokes and have part of their brains destroyed uh, can uh, have secondary uh, avenues for speech. And they can learn how to speak again. They can learn how to walk again. And so this plasticity uh, manifests itself throughout life. Uh, there is a repair mechanism that uh, that we can influence. Although we consider new news, this is something that actually the ancient uh, medicine people used to uh, engage. So, Doctor, for someone who's experienced some type of a, a mental health issue, in order for real change to occur, what has to happen? How can we create those new pathways? Well, uh, a lot of these circuits uh, of repair uh, are old and a lot of them are brand new. For example, uh, we uh, I have to tell you a short story here. Uh, I was a clinical uh, professor of orthopedic surgery for 12 years at Southwestern Medical School, and my specialty was pain management. And uh, I tried many avenues of helping these people who were failures uh, from surgery and other kinds of medical technology. And I went to a, a workshop uh, for shamanism. When I asked about the, the uh, management of pain, they told me to beat a drum. Now, that sounds really ridiculous, mm -hmm. but I tried it. And it had a profound effect on, on um, pain problems. So being a scientist, I wanted to know why. Why would this simple technique make a big difference? And what I found is that uh, the beating of the drum in this particular tempo made a big difference in the brain patterns and brain mechanisms. The brain relaxed and, and apparently induced some what we call endorphin flow, which are uh, internal pain modulators. And so what uh, happens is that uh, this old ancient technique kind of started uh, a ball rolling down the hill, you might say. And uh, we, we found that uh, uh, sound uh, had a particular important uh, impression on the brain. And so from there, we start looking at where do these sounds come from. And one of the uh, important discoveries that I made was that much of it had to do with music, or rather the underlying rhythm of music. And so that started a whole line of research in terms of what rhythms produced what changes in the brain. We find that smells, aromas, also will excite the brain and actually uh, create different uh, patterns. We find that uh, visual symbols also can, can help uh, uh, rhythm movement, like in dance and uh, yoga movement and so forth like that will also change the brain. So there's a lot of, of influence that we can do uh, in our daily lives to make a huge difference in terms of our brain and consequently our whole body functions. Doctor, in your book, you shared a story about a woman who had a traumatic experience in her life, and, and she went into what you defined as a mental lockup. She was stuck. 
And so many of us experience those types of things. We have a trigger that holds us back. It keeps us stuck in place. And this woman, no matter how hard she tried to break it, she wasn't able to until one day she did something so completely different, you know, something that you would never think she would do. How was this person able to go from being locked down to doing something completely out of character outside of her comfort zone? And and I ask that because there are so many people today that are stuck and, you know, how can they go from being locked down and and held down and stuck to taking that leap to doing something that can change their life? Well, you ask a very fascinating question because that's kind of the challenge that we all face is how do we get unstuck and um, how do we get out of our rhythms far enough to begin to uh, find new pleasures and new excitement and basically change our life. And uh, we see that every day. On the other, on the other hand, it's, it's still a phenomenon that we, we can't really explain other than there is a uh, decision at one level of, of changing the patterns of our, of our brain. Uh, and we often teach these uh, uh, to our patients such that they can then begin to uh, discover uh, getting out of their out of their closet, we say, and begin to experience life. For example, there's some some breathing techniques that are very profound for a lot of people. One has to do with uh, what I call alternate nostril breathing, where you uh, spend some time every day uh, just breathing through one nostril and then uh, change it to the other one. And what we what we discovered on the EEG is that this tends to initiate some very active repatterning of your brain uh, from your left on your right, uh, which would probably infer that there's some new creative way of of dealing with with other uh, problems that come up. Your brain basically gives you new uh, gifts where you can learn how to deal with stress in creative ways. Uh, There's also some ways of uh, like I said, of changing your diet. Just changing your diet will make you think differently, will give you much more optimism, uh, for example, and consequently be able to break out of old patterns. Uh, and then there's uh, exercises, doing uh, long walks, uh, where you basically be able to uh, uh, get out in nature, because nature has its own way of teaching you new ways of dealing with life and perceiving your gifts. So there's several avenues, and some are easier than others for people. Some of these exercises that can really be helpful in how uh, a person like this woman can break out of her shell. It sounds like you take a, a much more natural approach to healing. And for the average person in general, obviously there are cases outside of what I'm asking, but in general, when someone experiences a mental health issue and goes to the doctor, do you think that medications are being prescribed too readily? Well, you, you hit on a real important topic in my uh, in my thoughts, because this is a real problem that we have. Let me give you an example. The uh, symptoms of nearly all problems have to do with attention. And so if you're depressed, you, tend, you lose a lot of your ability to focus and have attention. This is also very, very important in terms of anxiety. Yet one of the major features of, of dealing with especially childhood attentional deficit disorder is using drugs, and I think that that is overdiagnosed about 75% of the time because attention issues have to do with, like I said, nearly every other diagnosis in the book. So what is really, and with children, you don't know the uh, effects of that. For example, uh, I've read one study in which the, the use of Ritalin uh, in early uh, children, five years old, actually uh, younger than 23, was basically detrimental 
to the overall development of the brain. So I think for especially when children that uh, the use of medications that we have no notion of of the after effects will have and in these uh, very, very precious years of development can really have some detrimental effects. So I would caution uh, parents uh, uh, to try some of these more naturalistic approaches rather than going to the pill. We have technology today that really it, it shows us what's happening within the brain. And when a person goes to the doctor, when they're experiencing a mental health issue, what are some of the tests that should be done? Are scans an important part of making a diagnosis? Well, scans for us are a cornerstone of, of what we uh, do to help determine what's going on in the person. Now, you cannot use scans alone to diagnose a person because the, the brain dynamics can help you exp- understand what's going on, but you really can't. Uh, make a diagnosis strictly on that. But I think that what we find, especially in with regard to the EEG findings, is that uh, we can then be able to differentiate the treatment programs. For example, if you have a person that comes in and they com- they're complaining of depression, uh, they may have a number of different kinds of brain scans that explain that. For example, uh, in one, one pattern, uh, that we see a lot is where you have asymmetry, where one part, the, where the right part of the brain is more active or less active than the other side. So, uh, in that situation, we want to create exercises and various kinds of stimulation that will even up those uh, areas. And another one, uh, another situation in which uh, you're dealing with. Uh, uh, issues with regard to uh, depression, you, you may want to look at uh, issues uh, that have to do with just generally low levels of activity across all the brain. And that's a situation that uh, uh, would probably need some issues uh, of uh, using some levels of medication for stimulation. The book is Retraining the Brain, a 45-day plan to conquer stress and anxiety. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Lawless and his work, you can visit franklawless.com. Doctor, thank you so much for spending time with us. As I said in the beginning, the statistics are alarming, and the information that you shared with us can be life-changing. So thank you for being here, and thank you for doing such important work. Well, I sure appreciate that, Joan, and uh, uh, good luck to everybody out there. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call expert provides strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Harriet Cabelli, a social worker and positive psychology coach who helps people grow through their challenges and rebuild their lives with renewed meaning and joy. Harriet is here today to discuss happiness. Welcome, Harriet. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. It's great to be here. So, Harriet, this is a big topic because Being happy means something different to each person. How do 
you define happiness? What does that word mean to you? Okay, and that's a huge topic for a few minutes, but let's get into a couple of of highlights. Happiness, first of all, to me and to many people, certainly in the positive psychology field, is a combination of meaning plus joy. Now, having said that, let's go into it a little bit deeper. So when we think of happiness in general, we think of elation, joy, excitement, all the positive emotions, which is true. It encompasses positive emotions. But we don't stop there because positive emotions tend to be transient. We all know we come in and out of moods, right? We go in and out of happiness and joy and sadness, just like cloud shifting. It's transient. We flow. So if we just connected happiness to just positive emotions, then whenever we felt bad, we'd say, I feel lousy. And we do. We can say that because we do feel lousy. But it encompasses more than just those positive feelings. And I I use the word happiness in conjunction with well-being because I think well-being is much more rounded. It involves the meaning aspect as well. The meaning, the fulfillment, the purpose, the significance. It's all of that. It's meanings and value plus the positive emotions, because when we look at the the meaning part, that goes a little bit deeper, and it's a little bit more steady and constant than just the positive emotions that we know flow. So we could have a happy life, even though we're going through some tough times, because during those tough times, we're not going to have the, I'm excited, I'm happy, we're going to have the sadness. But that is also part of the human condition and can go along absolutely with well-being because well-being, as I said a minute ago, I kind of use synonymously with happiness because I think it's more of that word that encompasses both aspects of meaning and joy. Whereas when we think of happiness, we do simply think of feeling good and just the tra-la-la moments. So Harriet, what goes into the inner versus the outer forms of happiness? In our society nowadays, there's, a, there's a, a, a saying that some of us use, happiness is an inner job. Mm-hmm. Happiness is, it, it's much more an inner state. And why do we say this? Again, because it's too fleeting otherwise, because feeling good can, can just go by the wayside any moment. So what does it mean that happiness is, is an inner job? Well, let's look at two words. So Again, this is a Greek term, and I'm trying to say it correctly, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is a Greek term. Aristotle used it. The E-U comes from the word good, and the daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N, comes from the word spirit or truth or divine. So meaning eudaimonia is more of that inner well-being within, within ourselves, versus hedonism, and we all know that word, or the, the real word is hedonia, which means pursuing or chasing, where we're pursuing and chasing our happiness and our joys. And that's much more external. And we know that term, hedonistic. It's, a, it's short-term. It's self-enhancing. It's the momentary pleasures. That doesn't enhance us long-term. That's a short-term piece of joy. The deeper happiness and well-being we get is the more eudaimonia one, where it is more fulfilling and more lasting, and that we connect, again, to what's important to us and what's meaningful to us. It's not where we avoid challenges or we avoid things that bad things that are going to happen because we can't, but even that, there still could be a sense of great well-being in going through challenges, in how we cope and how well we respond and grow from them. So it becomes much more well-rounded. So we, we encompass as human beings the full palette of human emotions, the good and the bad. So of course we're not going to say we're happy, we feel happy when going through a loss or we get fired from a job. We're not feeling happy and joyful, but within the bad, we also can have variables of strength and overcoming and being able to cope well that later on point to a sense of self-pride, a sense of well-being. I was able to come through this and that 
all contributes to a rich, happy, well-lived life. So it's the combination of both the inner and the outer, but it's much more of that inner job that's more sustaining. If we only hook into the materialism or the external, we're a bottomless pit. Harriet, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Harriet and her work, you can visit her website, rebuildlifenow.com. And as always, to hear more from Harriet, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Harriet. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest, Emily Oster, applies research data to the early years of parenting. She has found that the conventional wisdom doesn't always hold up. She's here today to share some of her conclusions. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of Expecting Better, Why the Conventional Pregnancy Wisdom is Wrong and What You Really Need to Know. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Esquire. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Emily, let's go through some of our most common beliefs and what you have found about them. You say that regarding breastfeeding, not everything that the medical world or our friends tell us is accurate. What does the data tell us about breastfeeding? With breastfeeding, there is often a lot of pressure on women uh, and people are told some crazy things like breastfeeding will improve your friendships and other things in that nature. The the truth is um, that there are some early life benefits to breastfeeding, uh, improved digestion, maybe some impacts on eczema, and actually, probably surprisingly, some long-term benefits in terms of breast cancer prevention for the mom. But on the flip side, some of these things women are often told, like breastfeeding will lower your kid's obesity or make their IQs higher when they're older. Those are not supported when we look in the best data. What about breastfeeding regarding the risk of breast cancer? Is there any evidence that it helps? Yeah, there is. Actually, the evidence looks like uh, it actually reduces some of the risk of breast cancer for, for women who, who breastfeed. Um, and some of those effects are pretty big, particularly if you breastfeed for, for a long time. So that's, uh, that's something that's a, on, the, on the plus side of breastfeeding, although not, not about the kids. When I had my first child, I remember he, in the very beginning, he would torment me in the middle of the night. He would want to eat, and it would take an hour to feed him, and then he would go back to sleep, and an hour later, he'd be waking me up. And the doctor said to me, it's time to let him cry it out. And it was a big thing in our house that night. We, My husband and I, we geared ourselves up for, you know, this was the, the big event. He was going to cry it out. And he cried for four minutes, went to sleep, and never did it again. So what does the research tell us about that cry it out philosophy of, of basically training a child. Yeah, so I think one thing it, it tells you is that your experience is not, you're not alone. Uh, letting your kid cry until they fall asleep is for many kids an effective way to get them to sleep better and also to get parents to sleep better. And so I think that's often missed in this, that actually uh, having your kids sleep for longer, it can help parents be happier and more happy with each, with each other. On the flip side, a lot of people are concerned that if you let your kid cry it out, they will not love you anymore, that there will be problems with attachment later, and that's simply not supported in the data. So if you look at evidence on kids who have done cried out versus those who have not, you don't see any difference in their attachment or their happiness or their behavior when you look at them when they're older. So I think despite the concerns that are often raised there, there just isn't any reason in the data to be to be worried about that. A big issue for parents, and I would say women in particular that have a career, is whether or not to become a stay-at-home mom or parent. And that's been a debate that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you think your kids are better. And if you go to work, you think your kids are better. Does the research show anything? Is there any benefit to staying home versus continuing working? No, there really isn't. Uh, there isn't any evidence in the data that either of these choices is better for kids. Um, this is a place where you know it'd be great to have more data. We don't uh, we don't always have what we what we want, but to the extent that we do, it just doesn't look like there's any difference in these kids. And one of the things I really advocate in the book is that, you know, when thinking about this choice, uh, women and, and their, their partners should think about what do I want? What is going to work for me? What will make me happy? 
Uh, and that is just often totally lost in these discussions about whether whether you know, women or anybody should should work. It's all talking about what's best for the kid, what's best for the kid, without saying, hey, you know, I'm also a person. Like, I should think about what what works for me. And I think that's that's really important. If a parent does decide to continue on with a career and go back to work, and they're researching daycare, what are some of the considerations that they need to make when making that selection? So there, there's some uh, some guidelines for looking in, at a daycare. You want to make sure it's safe. Uh, you want to make sure that you know there are a few toys around and so on. And I think there's there's also a, a, something that's a little bit harder to judge, but I think many parents would do a good job uh, doing this, which is trying to think about is the daycare really centered around the child, and so sort of spending a little time there looking and seeing are the are the caregivers sitting down with the kids or you know are they on their phones, which wouldn't be as good. Um, and, you know, are they really are they really engaged? And so those are the kind of things that, that you're looking for. I think it's worth noting that, you know, you're not necessarily looking for, like, is this the fanciest daycare uh, around? Because I think that that isn't something that gets a lot of weight in the data. It really is, you know, are these people who are taking care of your kids interested in being with your kids and engaging with kids? And finally, Emily, in this technology-driven world, how important is reading to our children? Reading to your children is important. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that kids who are read to more tend to do better in school. They read earlier themselves. And there's even some very neat evidence from brain imaging that kids who are read to more, when they are read to, have different kinds of activation in their brain, more activation in the visual area, suggesting that maybe they're having an easier time visualizing the, the book because they have more experience being read to. So. So reading to your kids is is, uh, is important and also fun. So that's a, another good reason to do it. Emily, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? So the, the new book is called Crib Sheet, and you can find it uh, at bookstores and, and on Amazon. I think that's a good place to start. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Feng Shui is an ancient Chinese art which creates harmony and balance between you and your personal space. Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a Feng Shui and space clearing consultant. When our environment is in perfect balance, the effects can be felt within each of our four body systems, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. One of the first areas to be addressed when making adjustments in our personal environments in Feng Shui is to clear clutter. Since everything is made of energy and carries a specific vibration of frequency, clearing clutter is of utmost importance. Clutter holds multiple levels of vibrational frequencies, making it impossible for energy to flow freely. Once you have cleared any clutter, then adjustments can be made to specific areas in your personal space, enhancing the flow of energy. Let's take a look at unseen energies. Discordant energies such as negative energy from angry people, any type of illness, death, abuse, divorce, and depression can leave their impression in our personal environment. These energies can attach to our auric field from the moment we step foot into a space, leaving us feeling uncomfortable. These are just a few of the many aspects in the field of feng shui that can help shift the flow of energy. Others to consider are space clearing, feng shui remedies, furniture rearranging, color selections, implementing the principles of the Bagua map, and the five elements. All these components have the ability to affect our wealth and prosperity, fame, love, family, health, children and creativity, knowledge and wisdom, career, travel, and mentors. How our environment looks and feels on the outside is a reflection of how we look and feel on the inside. If you would like more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com or call 201-615-0960. Did you know that when we as women think about caring for ourselves through pregnancy, labor, and the postpartum period, that we often overlook the vital role of a birth and postpartum doula. Hi, my name is Rachel, owner and primary doula at The Village Doula. And I'm here to tell you that a doula isn't just some new age accessory for the super wealthy. Instead, she is a vital educator, guide, support, and coach through one of the most critically transformational times of your life, the time where you will make the transition into motherhood. During my years as a registered nurse, I began to see a gap in care that many mothers were facing. Here are a few reasons why a doula is a vital part of your birthing team. Women who chose to include a doula in their care were 40% less likely to experience cesarean section. 
Their labors were almost 40 minutes shorter on average, and they experienced a 25% reduction in forceps and vacuum-assisted births. Women who used a doula in their care also reported feeling overall supported, well, happy, and adjusted in their postpartum period. They also experienced lower rates of postpartum depression and anxiety by almost 35%. This is huge and such an honor to be a part of this process for new families. For more information on closing the gap in care, please visit my webpage at thevillagedoula.life. Are you someone who wants to be healthy and makes a commitment to get healthy only to feel like you failed when you go out and about and don't have anything to eat so you eat that piece of pizza or that hoagie? Hi, I'm Sarah Outlaw from Natural Health Improvement Centers of South Jersey and Des Moines and Real Life Outlaw. I was that person, so I am right here with you. I want to give you my best tips on staying healthy so that you can go out and about and not feel like you are starving to death. My best tips for finding things to eat is actually to plan. If you don't plan, plan to fail. Pack things like organic beef jerky, or hummus and guacamole along with some vegetables, cucumbers, carrots, things that you can easily put into a little cooler or into a baggie, things that you can grab and go so that you're not constantly looking for something to eat. Always making sure that you're packing a water bottle so that you're not tempted to buy a soda or buy some coffee with some junky creamer in it. Those types of things are important for your health. So I definitely recommend that you take some time the night before you go out to prepare those types of things. If you have kids, the same things apply. It's so easy to ride through the drive-thru and grab this or that for your kids, but it's even easier to take a few minutes earlier in the day or the night before to make some preparations to make sure that they have the snacks that they need. I also love to make a muffin tin up and put all sorts of different fruits and veggies and dips in those and put it on the table if I'm going to be home during the day for my kids. Those types of things are amazing to keep your kids healthy and strong. I hope these tips helped you stay healthy and well. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or Google. Search for Conversations with Joan and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, cyacyl.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today to discuss generalized anxiety is Lisa Bronfman. Lisa is a licensed clinical social worker and chief operations officer for Nothing But Advice. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to be with you. So Lisa, it's normal for people to experience occasional anxiety, but more and more people are seeking help for symptoms that may be overwhelming. Let's talk about this problem and what we need to know. First, can you please explain to us what is meant by generalized anxiety? Sure. Um, And the first thing you said I really think is important, so I actually want to highlight it, and that is feeling anxious or having uncomfortable sensations that often result in nervousness is very normal. Uh, And I think more often than not, we tend to think we're supposed to feel good all the time. And that's just absolutely not the case. So I think normalizing when we feel distress and accepting it as part of our existence is extremely important. I look at it more as what is it trying to say to us? Because I feel like it is the body's alarm system for kind of cueing us to take a deeper look and see what's going on in our environment that is triggering us and see what we can do about it. So Lisa, how does anxiety usually present? What are the symptoms? More often than not in my practice, I have people come to me at, you know, they're just feeling a lot of discomfort. And I would say that that discomfort gets in the way of, let's say, day-to-day functioning on some level. It's interfering in something in their life. And it usually in physical sensations. People experience it differently, but you'll hear things like uh, sweaty palms, fast heart rate, inability to think clearly, a muddied brain, 
shaking, sleep disturbance, real nervousness, uh, stuff like that. But it's usually bodily sensations when people are talking about anxiety. So you just explained to us that it's normal to have these types of feelings from time to time. How can a person tell when they need to get help? I think the key in when to seek help is how much is it interfering in your day-to-day functioning? How much is it interfering in your general joy, happiness, the ability, your ability to sleep, eat, um, is it interfering in relationships? You know, where is it showing up and how much is it interfering in your day-to-day functioning? What is the role of suppressing our emotions? How does that link to anxiety? I, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine whose daughter is really having a lot of problems. And she thinks it's because for so many years, she's been stuffing her emotions, not feeling them. Is there a correlation between doing that and having anxiety? Okay, I absolutely love that question. So the definition I've come up with is anxiety to me is think of it like a computer, okay? You buy a computer and let's say you wanted to do X, but the computer's programmed to do Y. And you get home and you start banging away at the computer because you wanted to do the thing you purchased it for, but it's never been programmed to do that. And then ultimately what happens? You know, the computer goes kaput and it doesn't work. I feel like... Anxiety is when somebody thinks and feels one thing, but behaves in another way. And when we are out of sync or out of alignment with our behaviors and what our thoughts and feelings are, then it often manifests itself in what we are now calling anxiety, which are unpleasant sensations in our body that make us extremely uncomfortable. Emotions are crucial to help us understand how we should behave in the world, what decisions we should make, and what decisions support us, support our our inner feelings. You know, how do we behave in a way that, that supports us, nurtures us? And I think when we are unaccustomed to talking about emotions, unaccustomed to identifying emotions, unaccustomed to really seeing what they're trying to tell us, and then how we can behave in the world in a way that actually takes care of ourselves, more often than not, our body, it revolts, and it revolts in anxiety. So it becomes crucial, and an educational tool that I use more often than not is really getting people to start to clear away the muck what and figure out what it is they're feeling. How do they even identify their feelings? That's often not something people are really too adept at because we're not really taught it. And in fact, from a very young age, I think we're giving messages as a society and sometimes even as parents to, you know, be quiet. Why are you crying? What's wrong with you? Um, and so subliminally, we're, we're really taught to kind of hone them in, you know, rein in those emotions, not even look at them. And then they start to feel scary and we start to think we're going to get buried in them. And so we become extremely good at pulling ourselves away from what we're feeling. And we find all sorts of ways to anesthetize ourselves, whether it's, you know, overthinking and overanalyzing, whether it's overeating, overexercising, drinking, drugs, uh, spending tons of money, having wild, inappropriate sex. I mean, human beings come up with a million and one ways to pull ourselves out of discomfort. And instead, I think, you know, the rerouting needs to come into sitting in the discomfort and actually looking at what our body is trying to tell us and what feelings are underlying that. Self-awareness is a key to managing symptoms and, and even promote healing. So what are some other things that you recommend we do to handle the situation by ourselves? I think there are some wonderful tools available. As soon as you start to feel extreme discomfort, if you've ever had a panic attack or ever had extreme anxiety, it is truly one of the more uncomfortable things that you can experience. And so the tendency is to pull out of it when, in fact, learning how to sit in it, as crazy as that sounds and as uncomfortable as that sounds, is really the best thing to do. And so some of the tools can be um, mindfulness training, uh, some very short meditative exercises to learn how to sit still, really focusing on breathing techniques. Um, Breathing is actually scientifically proven to decrease anxiety. Um, What it can do is it is tapping into the vagus nerve, which prevents our feeling of overwhelm. 
and actually triggers the heart to slow down and starts to get the physiological response of telling the body there's no danger. You know, you're actually finding a way to calm that fight-flight response that's happening with anxiety, and you're triggering a calming mechanism that's built inside the body. So even breathing techniques, um, yoga is another great form of things that people can do at home, very gentle yoga. So there's, there's a lot of things people can do alone if they don't want to walk into a professional's office. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, search for Conversations with Joan, and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, cyacyl.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. joining us i hope you found the show informative at change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now remember the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation if you'd like more information visit our website cyacyl.com that stands for change your attitude change your life while on our site Listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.